Hello there, welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry and last week I had a dream about baking where there's originals candies into chocolate chip cookies and so I actually just tried to do this and they turned out amazing. So I'm going to start a cookbook with this one recipe in it. Today I'm chatting with the legendary animator and director Chris Bailey. Chris has worked on most of the Disney hand-drawn films including Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under, The Lion King, and Hercules. And most recently he's gone on to work with Six Point Harness to direct The Great Wolf Pack, A Call to Adventure, Great Wolf Lodge's first feature film. Um, which brings about a very interesting discussion about branded feature films, which is a new kind of concept to me, and I think in general in the industry. Now, besides this, Chris gives away his super tips for mastering hand-drawn animation and how to strategize yourself into a director role. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good, good, good. Thanks for coming on the chat. So, um, you know, you've had a very illustrious career in animation. You've been animating since before I was even a thought. Uh, you know, what is it like eating, sleeping, breathing animation most of your life? Like, how do you feel right now? <laughs> well, I, I haven't been eating and breathing it my entire life. When, when I was a kid, I actually wanted to draw superhero comics. And as you can see... I mean, that's kind of similar. Some original comic book art on the walls. So... Even though like I'm a Disney guy and I'm an animation guy in my career, which is which is more decades long than I care to admit, um, I'm like a comic book, Marvel comic guy at heart, actually. Don't don't tell me you were animating all these years wishing you were working on comic books. No, no, I've done a couple of comic books on my own. I, I like reading comics. I like ah, doing animation okay, okay, and I okay. read comics. But I do love comics. I'd I'd still love to do comics or um, maybe some superhero animation or something. So are you, you're, you're still, I mean, you're still quite active in animating and directing. Do you ever lose that excitement? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think sometimes, cause you know, you get tired doing anything, um, yeah. but um, you know, I always considered it kind of my superpower that I can get excited about most anything, especially, you know, if it has a character and, and sort of a unique perspective, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, so, I'm like, yeah, I, wanna, I can get behind that. It's kind of like, I, you know, I've done a lot of visual effects supervision as well and animated, yeah. supervised animation for live action movies like Alvin and the Chipmunks and X-Men 2. And, and in between directing, and, you know, my own things, or, or not my own things, but, but directing, I, I enjoy getting behind someone else's perspective and helping realize that you know, as much as um, doing my own thing. Cause I, you know, you, I learned from those experiences. Of course, that makes sense. Where do you find, I guess, like, I'm just thinking, you know, over the years, where does that well of enthusiasm to stay in the industry and feel excited and, you know, continually push yourself to try different things? Cause you, you've kind of done it all at this point. You haven't just stayed as a, you know, a hand-drawn animator all these years. Where does that, what is that well you tap in? What is in that well that you tap in? <laughs> Um, gosh, I don't know. Let me let me think about that. It could be a character flaw. Maybe I'm just impatient, and may and I have a short attention span. Uh, so animation that, is just that thing that keeps you <laughs> entertained. Maybe. Well, you know, when when you know, you, most of us have jobs growing up in school. Whether it's you paper out, you work at a grocery store, or you you flip yeah. hamburgers or something. And and I always at 
the, the ripe old age of like 16 or 17, I realized there was a curve to every job I'd have. There would be a panic of not knowing how to do it. Then there'd be a brief moment in time where I could do the job and I was comfortable and kind of enjoyed it. And then boredom just set in. Oh, was yeah. Like, oh, yeah. God. What time is it? Is it time to go home yet? Oh, it's only been like five minutes past the last time I looked at the clock. So there's something about animation and creating a performance and, you know, back in the old days of flipping paper, you know, to people on the outside, you're, you're doing the same drawing a hundred times. But, you know, to, a, to someone on the outside of someone writing, they're typing the same letters over and over again. Exactly. But you're both exactly. a writer and an animator, you're solving problems in your head and you're creating something and, and it, it's incredibly engaging. And, and still at the end of the day, you look at it and go, ah, could I have done more? Or did I communicate what was in my head? You know, there, it seemed like there's a, if there's a bar in your head that you can never reach, that, that generates your excitement. At least it does for me. Oh, totally. No, I, I get that, you know, the learn something, excitement, learn it for, and then you're satisfied for like 10 seconds and then boredom. I even feel that in animation too, but um, if I was doing the same thing over and over again, but, you know, just like character performance is so challenging and you're, you're constantly discovering how they look and are posed and animate on a page, which is just super interesting to me. So also, I also do stop motion. So that's a whole different challenge and interesting thing for me too. So, okay. Yeah, you know, uh, I love stop motion. I'd love to talk to you more about that. One of my, um, you know, I've been teaching part-time at Chapman University and, and I teach a live action storyboard class and uh, animation class. And the, there was an animator or there was a, there was a stop motion animator in my live action class. And, you know, you know, people like want to show me stuff and I'm always, I'm like, you know, gosh, is going to be good or is it not going to be good? You know, I, I always kind of, I'm, I'm afraid half the time because, you know, it's like, okay, if it really needs a lot of work, I want to be encouraging and yeah, give yeah. concrete advice. Man, this guy blew me away. And it was like, huh. It's like, this is a guy in the student. He was doing it for fun. He, he was, wasn't even like a hardcore stop motion guy. And it was completely professional level work. Amazing. Well, let me tell you, everybody who does stop motion does it for fun. <laughs> you oh, wouldn't okay. be doing All it right. if it, it wasn't for point. fun. <laughs> um, so, you know, dial back a little bit for me. So you're 16, 17, wanting to get into uh, comics. How did you end up, you know, in animation and not only in animation, but, you know, at the top studio in the world at the time, working on some of the biggest films and et cetera, et cetera. Like, where, how did this, how did this happen for you? Well, you know, the, in those days, there was a, it was the, but before the Disney Renaissance of the eighties, yeah. you know, animation was really, it was really dead, you know? So you know, I was a little kid in the sixties and I'd watch, you know, the reruns of Bugs Bunny on TV and I loved those. And then they were doing a lot of superhero shows, but they were, it was before the seventies that were all politically correct and where nobody could hit each other. So the superheroes in the shows I watched, you know, they could, the bad guys were really bad and the good guy could really hit him in the face. And, and it was really fun for me. It was a mere version of the comic books I was um, reading and looking at. Uh, and Johnny Quest, for example, you know, that was a real action show. Johnny would, you know, be on the bow of the boat with a gun shooting at alligators as they were going down the Amazon. And, and so, so I loved that, that action adventure. So, so I grew up, you know, loving cartoons, wanted to be a comic book artist and do action adventure uh, and animation, but TV animation during the 70s as I was growing up was, was terrible. But uh, 
I still wanted to do it. And I was reading a magazine, I think I was a junior in high school, and I was reading a magazine called the Comics Journal, and it had a, an animation column, and it mentioned CalArts, and a place where you could learn to do Disney-style character animation. And I never thought I'd be good enough to work at Disney, and I just figured whatever I'd learned there uh, would help me move characters around a little better, and would just make me better in whatever you know, comic books I ended up drawing or whatever career in art I ended up taking. And it just so happened that, you know, as I got into it, uh, it was just uh, just on the cusp of this whole, whole uh, you know, second golden age. Right. So, so that was it. You know, I went to CalArts and, and I had wonderful people in my class from, you know, Kelly Asbury to Rob Minkoff and, you know, good friends of mine and you know, became very successful in their own right, and Kirk Wise and Kevin Lima. And, um, you know, it, I just kind of rode the animation wave. Kind of that simple. <laughs> that sounds great. So you just went to CalArts being like, I hope this improves my drawing skills. And then you got snatched yeah, up. Yeah, it, it was because, you know, I went there and all my friends, they knew Disney films, they knew all the animators and, and all the directors. And I actually, I'd seen Disney, a couple of Disney films growing up, but I, I didn't have that that background. Hmm. I could tell you, you know, you know, who who drew the first 150 issues of the Fantastic Four, you know, but <laughs> but uh, but not that. So it was so and that was very exciting for me because I, you know, I, it was it was all very, very sort of fun and new. And um, I don't know, I think I'm kind of getting off track, but um, uh, well, but that was it. I was going to do comic books until I read that article in a comic book magazine of interviews and criticism that mentioned CalArts. And I think the biggest thing was is that there wasn't an art school to go to at the time where I could get a degree um, in comic book art, but CalArts yeah. would give you a, a Bachelor of Arts in character animation. So it was like, okay, I'm not a fine artist, but I can go to this art school and my parents will approve and, and uh, I can do cartoons or whatever happens to Nice. So you just happened, you're, you're kind of saying it was just like the right timing, I guess, for when it was, yeah, I, I mean, I everybody so. in your graduating class just got snatched up by different studios. Uh, yeah, there were quite a few people in the classes just before me and after mine that, that just had really wonderful careers. Oh, hang on a second. Sure. Let me turn that off. I have a, a sync sketch going for oh. the Great Wolf Pack, <laughs> and someone is scrubbing through it right now, so I'm hearing Great Wolf come out of another speaker. You're literally- uh, I'm sorry, say that again one more time. What's that? I said, you're literally eating sleep, you're turning off sync sketch while doing a podcast about animation. You're literally doing it all. That's right. Okay, then so- I'm, Then I'm anim animating a shot with my foot over here. <laughs> yeah, right. So you're at Disney, and uh, you start as a junior animator? Yeah, I think, let's see, I was, uh, I was hired by Daryl Van Sitters, who, who runs Renegade Animation at the moment. It's a little boutique, and I shouldn't even say little, it's a, but it is a boutique animation studio in Glendale. And he was my first director at Disney, and he had a shorts unit that was doing Sport Goofy and some other things like that. And so I started out as a freelance animator for him, and then he hired me to come in-house. Then Disney decided to fold the unit, and they asked all of us in-house if we'd come help out, help finish The Great Mouse Detective, because that was in, um, uh, you know, its final six months of production. And, you know, all these movies are behind in the last few months, and it's like anybody that can hold a pencil that can help out, they, 
yeah. say, hey, come on over. Um, so I animated a few shots on that. But I actually left after that to go back and do CGI for a year. And then that CGI studio folded. And then I was asked, I was asked by some people at Disney, well, would you like to come back and animate for us at Disney? You know, some 2D animation. I was like, yeah, sure. I got nothing else to do. And then I ended up staying for another 10 years or so. Wow. That sounds pretty turbulent. You know, why do you think they asked you to come back? Did, did you, you know, when you were working there, you excelled at, you know, a certain like character animation or something like that, you know, because they're Disney. They can ask anybody, I guess. Well, I, I don't know about that. I, you know, because I, I was a junior animator and I, I can't say I was setting the world on fire with any of my shots, but um, I had a little digital CG experience uh, before I came to Disney the first time. And when I left, it was to work at a company called Digital Productions. And so I was getting a lot of 3D experience at that point. And Disney was talking with them about software development and things like that. And so I was talking with a lot of executives at Disney while I was at Digital and, and about being part of what they were possibly going to do with um, uh, Disney and, and digital as, as a team in the future. So I think when that didn't happen and digital folded, they said, hey, look, we're not going to go forward with digital, but you know, would you like to come back and work for us at Disney? So I think it was that relationship that I'd started on Great Mouse Detective that I continued, even though I was away at digital, that, nice. uh, that led to them asking me to come back. So tell me about, you know, you were at Disney for 10 years and you were animating on a whole bunch of films that were pivotal to Disney, you know, becoming such a big success. Um, you know, what is maybe, can you share some skill knowledge on becoming a super amazing, you know, hand-drawn animator when it comes to <laughs> all the experience you've had? <laughs> well, you know, there were two, I worked with, I, I was lucky when I was a young animator to work with two just wonderful supervising animators with two completely different approaches. Hmm. Um, you know, one was Glenn Keane, who we've all heard about. And what was amazing about him, aside from the fact that, you know, he can draw anything, and, uh, but he, he really had this sort of like inside out way of animating and, and you know, how to, to feel the character. And, but there was a lot of technical uh, advice in there as well. Like he always wanted to start a shot with a character if they're walking on the down part of the walk or, or in an antic. So the character explodes at the beginning of the shot. There's some kind of mild explosion. He didn't mean to literally explode, but just, you know, you're moving up into the shot or out into the shot. And so I thought that was wonderful. And also I, I realized that, that even behind the most complicated drawing or seemingly complicated drawing, there was this really simple S-curve line of action to his work. And he would draw shapes first and then just like cram the character and anatomy into it. But if you really look at it, these the shapes that are moving are they're very simple, basic animation principles, you know, um, with just all this, this wonderful stuff hanging off of it. So he was one supervising animator and man, he was tough to, to work for. He was wonderful as a human being, but this, you know, I, I was, I was, I was struggling as an artist, but it, it was just, you know, learning like mountains every day. Um, and then the other supervising animator I had that I really learned a lot from was Hendel Butoy. He went on to direct as well. 
he had he was equally great animator, equally great actor. He his approach was a little bit quieter and it was a little more technical. So where you know Glenn might say something like he needs to look more sad, and I'm like, I think he looks sad. It's like more sad how, you know. Um, Kendall would be like, oh, turn, do this to the eye or do this to the mouth or, or here, when you do this four-legged walk, you know, the, the, pretend like the, the back leg is kicking out the front leg, you know, that'll get the pattern working right or, or always lead with their head, you know, animals lead with their head, people lead with their head, you know, they blink and turn before their shoulders turn and follow. So I loved all that um, technical nuts and bolts advice you know to add on top of everything i learned working with glenn what have you you know now that you've directed have you taken you know some perspective of being on both sides and getting all that advice and seeing where they are and applying that to yourself when you're directing <laughs> well completely of course you do there's there are things so that what, what kind of director was that, back in you arts that I, I still bring up to people today that that's stuck in my head absolutely yeah. So, okay, tell I mean, me about... The biggest thing, I think, is really, um, you know, leading turns with their head. Something that drives me nuts, and, and I've been doing, I've done a lot of, a fair amount of TV animation, as well as, you know, just high-end visual effects animation and feature animation. Um, something that drives me nuts that you see in TV is characters, when they turn, they literally, they just flip the body like that. <laughs> or... You know, and there, there's no overlapping action at all. And I'm like, dudes, necks are flexible. You can just like, you know, do a little squash blink and turn the neck. If you want them to face the other way, do the little squash blink, turn the head, and then turn the shoulders after. You know, but don't don't turn the solid character like it's on a turntable. But but I do see a lot of that. I think it comes from board artists kind of taking a a, a shortcut, and that where they can just grab a drawing and then they just clone it and flip it you know, yeah. instead of doing a head turn or something. So let me ask you this from a storytelling perspective. You know, there's one school of thought that says as long as it accomplishes the job and it gets across the audience, then it's fine, which would be, you know, the whole the whole flipping an image and saying they're looking this way and the audience, the general audience doesn't care. And then what would your school of thought be saying to that? Like, you know, why go the extra mile to put in all these extra nuances and behavioral techniques and animation? Like, what is that? bring on top of uh, the storytelling of, you know, gets the job done to a regular audience member? Well, there is, I do think it's not lost on people. And I think when you, when you look at a project, you're even, you know, even just as a, a young viewer or an educated viewer, I think you have an expectation by what it, um, just by what it looks like. You know, when you watch South Park, there's an element of humor that comes from these little cutout characters going, eh, 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 an explosion happens and it's a comp live action explosion. It's funny, right? Um, and you watch, uh, you know, say Rick and Morty, you're like, wow, that's like really great, really amazing looking monsters and funny humor. And, um, you know, the, and the characters do act, but there's not a, like a Disney level to the, the posing and acting, you know. Um, it's kind of like SpongeBob. They flex a little bit. There's action and counteraction, um, but a lot of those things kind of they're kind of baked into the the look and the humor, in a sense like South Park. But then if you look at you know Gendy's Primal, you're like, wow, that's like that's like feature animation only 
limited, but when it moves, it moves as good as feature, and, and even the held poses act like feature, you know, and, and then of course when you actually become, I think the next level is when you have like Disney or Pixar DreamWorks, where you really can get a more like natural performance, even if it's very caricatured and, and over the top, it moves very naturally and the characters move naturally. So I think, I think all those things are valid, but I think if you were to do a Disney film and you were to put South Park animation in the middle of a Disney or DreamWorks film, you'd think, what the hell? It would be yeah. jarring and it would take you out of the world. And I think likewise, if you took a Disney shot and you put it in South Park, you'd be like, wait, what? I shouldn't say that. South Park could probably do anything and it would come off the screen. I think Family Guy did an episode or an intro or something um, where they did like Disney level animation yeah. just, to, just as a gag. But I do think, you know, acting is important. I think the better a character acts, people will, you know, empathize with the character. I do think even directing like TV style animation, the number one thing is character and story. Is it clear? Just like what you said. It's got to be clear. If people don't get it, we're sunk. And then, then the second thing is, well, is it entertaining? Great, you can make someone walk through a door, but there's that old adage that a comedian doesn't walk through a funny door, they walk through a door funny. Uh, it's all performance-based. So if and so that's the next level. And then, was it well-drawn? Is it well-animated? You know, then that's kind of the, especially for a, on a, a faster scheduled show, like in TV, that's right. like the icing on the cake. Sounds like also what you're saying is it's also about kind of audience expectation of what they're what they, the storytelling they are coming to experience, I guess, like what you said with South Absolutely. Disney. It, you know, I loved Johnny Quest as a kid, and but they can fly in a jetpack and it be this could be this really great pose on a held cell, and there's like a 12 frame cycle of the, the jetpack right. behind it. And you're like, wow, cool. You know, probably less than 12 frames. <laughs> yeah, there's multiplane stuff going on, and and you can project yourself there. But again, like you put that in a Disney film and you're like, wait, what happened? The character went dead and it became a pasted on, yeah. you know, drawing on top yeah. of the background. Um, but when you're, when you start out with a level of expectation, oh, this is comic booking, it's a little more graphic. You know, I think the audience will go there with you. So tell me how you made the jump from, you know, you worked for years and years as an animator and now you're directing and you're being called on projects to direct. How did you make the jump where people were, you know, calling you up to animate a scene versus people calling you up to direct a whole movie. Well, I, I have to give the credit to Peter Schneider, who used to run feature animation when I was there. Um, you know, I told him that was my long-term goal. I wanted hmm. to direct, and he was like, "Oh, really? How are you going to do that?" <laughs> yeah, I'm, and, I'm asking you too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I said, uh, "Oh, the, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. That's kind of a funny story." So I'd come back to Disney and I was on, uh, you know, uh, Great Mouse Detective or I think Great Mouse Detective or um, the next one, Oliver and Company. Can't remember exactly which. But I Disney was spread out among a bunch of annexes in Glendale, California. And I was walking back from one of the annexes to the main building. And I saw Peter Schneider driving out of the parking lot and it was starting to rain. So... I ran over his car and I banged on the window and he rolled it down and I said, hey, can you give me a, are you going back to the main building? Can you give me a ride? It's starting to rain. And uh, he was like, yeah, get in. So I got in the car and he made a joke uh, about 
what are you still doing here? Is it time for you to like quit again and go get a job someplace else? Because I'd come to Disney, I'd quit and come back to Disney. And I was, you know, the, the world, uh, the animation world was a, a big red apple and I just couldn't get a big enough bite. So I was always jumping around to something I thought was a little more interesting. And I said, no, 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 I think I'm going to stick around a little while uh, this time. He's like, oh. And then we're back at the main building, and I said, thanks, and I got out of the car. Well, that conversation, it just sort of sort of gave me the, the courage and the opening to just schedule a meeting with him and just say, no, I do want to stay. I'm going to work on my drawing and work on my animation, and eventually I'd like to direct projects. And he did literally say, how are you going to do that? I said, well, I figure I will just kind of bug you every five or six weeks and just maybe schedule a little 15-minute meeting and just tell you what I think about stuff. And eventually, after I animate on a project or maybe supervise a character or have a little, a little crew working, working under me on a character, you'll say, wow, we have this little project. This might be a good thing for Chris to direct. And that's a, really exactly what happened. I animated on a few movies and then a small project came up to direct for Paris Disneyland. And... I directed two small projects there, and it went well. And then I uh, project came up to supervise CGI on the first Hocus Pocus movie of the animated cat. Um, they were having a little bit of trouble with their CGI cat, and they came to feature animation. and And Peter Schneider told them to oh talk to Chris Bailey because I was one of the few two D animators that had some experience in CGI. And then you know. Yeah, got my so when you're okay, so you're experience. you're animating as your regular job, and then you're brought you're brought away to direct on these projects. Did you have to sign new contracts and everything, or you're just kind of like keeping the same role and then no, just no, spending? They, those, no, the well, the the Walt Disney Imagineering projects those were part of Walt Disney, and there was a lot of synergy uh, within the company that if they had a project that was heavy on character animation to direct that. You know, however that relationship worked with features, you know, they would say, oh, is there someone that you think would be ideal with this? I don't know who reaches out to who first. I have no yeah. idea. But um, I, I just said my first few projects were directing were for Walt Disney Imagineering. Okay, so you still kind of have the same role and then you go back to your role afterwards. It's, it's not. That's like right. That's right. You so see, tell me about your first directing experience. You know, you'd never directed something before. It's a small project. Uh, you're not animating every day anymore. Like, you know, how how did what what did you feel on day one of directing this project? Um, how do I do this? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I you know, the these it was luckily it was uh, it was a relatively simple introduction to directing. It was uh, these these little short animated cycles for a post show for the It's a Small World ride at uh, Paris Disneyland. Yeah. So uh, you you walk you walk out of the ride and there was a little three D set and each building represented an icon from a different country. So there'd be you know Big Ben or the Taj Mahal or you know, something like that. And when you'd look inside one of the windows there'd be a little dollhouse set and then animation would be projected in using the Pepper's ghost effect, which is like the haunted mansion. You know, there's a little TV screen at the top and a piece of glass at a 45 degree angle. And, uh, and France telecom put the bill for this ride. So it was someone in a country 
getting a music, getting a message from a friend in another country using one of the wonders of France Telecom, and then they would sing a musical message that would sink in the da 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 da, like a bullfighter's waiting, like oh my god, I'm late for the bullfight, and then all of a sudden his uh, you know tell his cell phone goes off, and or he call picks up his cell phone and he calls and he wakes the bull up saying where are you, and he's like oh my god I overslept. And then the little balloon disappears and the bull runs into the shot and then they, you know, hold hands and say, la, 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 la. So it was all these little, like, eight-panel, like, 15 eight-panel cycles, little vignettes that would just cycle over and over again. So there were two great things about that. One is I learned exactly how much information can you tell in a panel or in a 15-second cycle which is wonderful training. And the second thing is, because it was a Walt Disney project and France Telecom and Feature Animation, and everybody always wanted to see it and to see where it was. So this whole thing of having to stand up in front of people and pitch boards with a pointer, you know, is, if you imagine giving your first, you know, speech in class in school, you know, it's terrifying and like your heart's beating like it's gonna pop out of its chest. But the best part of it was I had to pitch so many times, so often, I just became exhausted. And it, and it just became something that was like, you know, falling out of bed. Just like, oh, yeah, hi. And you just pitch it again. And, 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 actually, and pitching so much, so often, I really got into the rhythm of pitching it. I could hone the jokes a little bit. You know, it was, you know, in a way, I guess it's kind of like doing stand-up. Nice. So. So anyway, so that was it. You know, it was a very simple project. It was really cute, and you know, everybody really liked it. But it was it was very, very simple and a perfect first project. Yeah, it still sounds like you learned a lot that you know you probably took with you to other projects. So how did you? So it sounds like you know you got smaller, small projects, and then bigger and bigger, bigger projects, and now you're directing feature films. <laughs> what you know? What is the biggest? Uh, you know, why does somebody call up Chris Bailey to say, hey, I want to like, for instance, the Great Wolf Pack, which which uh, for Great Wolf Lodge. Why did why did they call up you and say you're the guy like we know about? Well, um, you know, like, you know, I've known Brendan at Six Point Harness for years. Uh, my agent actually got us acquainted, gosh, probably like 10 years ago. And and even though I was like the visual effects guy, I think I was like the Alvin and the Chipmunks guy or the X-Men 2 guy with the Disney background at the time we met. And, and they don't do that. Uh, they, they haven't done a lot of that kind of work. But we liked each other. And we're like, wow, we've got to find something to do together. And I'd say, yeah, you do a lot of stuff that's like really fast. And I've done the stuff that's like really slow and the expensive of the expensive. And I'd love to do something. And I've done a little bit of TV. And I like doing stuff that can move a little faster. Um, and whenever we'd see each other at Comic-Con or something, I'd always, you know, we'd always say hi. And um, so eventually, I think, uh, when the six point, uh, when the Great Wolf people were bidding out this project and going out to animation houses, you know, I'm just grateful Brandon thought of me saying, oh, my God, this is a really, you know, cute kind of 3D character animation kind of thing that uh, Chris excels at. Maybe he'd be interested in directing that project for us. So he just asked me to to come in and you know help you know give some advice on the pitch and and lend my name to it should they win the award. Yeah. And and that was it. And I think the Great Wolf people 
Um, they responded to the other work I've done in the past, and and I was acquainted with the live action, uh, excuse me, not live action, but the film producer Julia Pistor, who uh, I'd been acquainted with before again through my agent, and I liked, but we'd never worked together, so it was kind of a win-win. We tried to work together a couple times, so it was like, wow, Julia and I want to work together, and they like my old work, and Brandon and I work to work, want to work together. It just all kind of you know dovetailed wow. together. So it sounds like, you know, a combination of your, your resume and also knowing kind of just people who want to work with you. I think so. Is and that how a lot of your directing projects come about? I'm sorry? Is that how a lot of your directing projects come about? Um, I think so. I'm trying to think. Sometimes it comes about through, um, you know, just meeting someone who had to bow out of a project and they hmm. recommend you. You know, I, I started uh, like a 10-year... CGI animation direction gig at, at Fox because a friend of mine who was originally going to direct the animation on Garfield uh, begged out of it. And he said, look, do you want to, I can give them your name if you want. I was like, sure. And, and so I did Garfield 1 and Garfield 2 and the visual effects, the animatic sequence on the end of Aragon and um, the Alvin and the Chipmunk movies and what was what was I'm curious what was the advice that you gave on this um the Great Wolf Lodge pitch with six part six point harness um I'm trying to think it was more about like looking at artwork because the the Great Wolf people had put together a wonderful um array of artwork that of films that they liked Hmm. and it wasn't a cohesive art direction look it was just gosh we love the look of Klaus and Look, and oh, there's this scene from, you know, I don't know, just whatever, yeah. you know, Little Mermaid. We love this look too. And uh, it was so, it was really a matter of, you know, talking with some of the artists, you know, at, at Six Point, And it's like, well, what should we put in this portfolio to say here, if we looked at your core material, read your script, this is what we think we could do. You know, not that we're actually doing final character designs or final art direction or anything, but we're just saying, here's a take. You know, we, we yeah. were inspired to go this direction. Um, so I think it was with character design, it was really about you know, getting some of those, that classic, you know, sort of 3D character animation into it. Nice. Background design, it was really keying off some of the inspiration they'd given us, which uh, was very theatrical and very shape oriented. So I don't know if they would articulate it that way, but I was like, wow, they love theatrical lighting. Whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not, they love theatrical lighting and they, they do like a stronger sense of graphic design to the shapes. So that, that sort of gave us our direction. Interesting. I guess so understanding kind of the behind the, what they're looking for and giving it back to them. I'm curious about this project because, you know, most of the people I talk to that work on features, the features are, you know, uh, stories that are made up by the studio, I guess, in a, in a sense, versus... You know, this project is a, a a company asking to, you know, include their branded characters in a in a feature film. What are some of the interesting kind of aspects and challenges of making a a feature film revolving around a company's branding? That's that's pretty interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that this was I have to give all the credit to Kent Redeker for that. He's the producer, uh, writer. He he joined the project before me, and. It, and what, there wasn't a universe to these characters. If you did go to the Great Wolf Lodge, uh, 
you would see drawings and cartoon drawings of a wolf or a you know squirrel or you know these characters but they don't really look like our characters and they they didn't have a world or, or a universe like you know the disney universe where mickey donald and goofy live together or the the ducks live in duckburg and you know they're and and really what they were looking for the uh, great wolf people is to make this a world and give these characters you know a character and a relationship and so Kent is the one that really sort of lived and breathed, you know, these these characters and came up with this unique take, which um, which which I think is pretty genius because you have our realistic world of the Great Wolf Lodge in our animated universe, and it's not a hotel or it's not a, a destination. It's just it's called the Great Wolf Lodge, but it's where all the animal characters hang out. And these animal characters they have families and. And it's just the meeting place. Then there's a place called the Great Sunny Spot that all the kids like to hang out at. Now, growing up in Oregon, all these when I when I think of you know rolling hills of trees and you know being out in the forest, I go, oh, it's overcast. So I'm thinking, oh, Great Sunny Spot, maybe that's over the cloud layer. Then and, and the only reason kids go there and not adults is because you know they have energy and they have all day to just to devote to one particular activity. So kids hang out at the great sunny spot, and then what happens is one of our characters slides off uh, into the next adjacent valley, and that's our fantasy valley, where there's a great wolf geyser, and there are the fantastic creatures that our characters interact with live. So in, in a way, it's like there's the fantasy world, and then there's the realistic world, and they're separated by a giant um, uh, you know, mountain range, I guess. Okay, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm curious. Did you have to get approval from like the corporate team on, you know, kind of the aspects of the messaging you're given, giving, and like specific things you have to say or include or things like that? I'm just wondering, you know, because normally I, I don't, I, I, you're kind of working with the producers and and whatnot on figuring that stuff out versus like an actual a brand, which I think is interesting. Well, they actually were the Great Wolf people. They weren't just the approval people that we would pitch to every month or two months or something like that. They were our partners on it. So they they were, you know, they lived with the script. They were happy with the script. And so really, I shared dailies with them. We met once a week, weeklies, I guess. Dailies in live action, weeklies in animation. And and I, you know, since I've worked with so many, excuse me, so many um different directors and studios doing visual effects where there's a lot of voices, I know sort of how far I can go before it's gone too far or where it causes a rift if they, you know, don't like it. Um, but I never want to give something that's not far enough along that they can't comment on. So really they were just like partners. Here, like for example, we've uh, I'll pitch character designs and I'll usually sort of push things, whether I'm doing them or, or a member of my team, Go a little more cartoony, a little more realistic, a little more, you know, animal, a little more human with animal heads kind of thing, just to kind of see where they're going. And then when they respond to those initial roughs, then we can push a little further that direction. Now, once we know who those characters are, or I say, look, okay, based on the script, I think this this character comes across to me as about this old. Would you say they're that old? How old, how old do you see them? Or uh, and they would give me their feedback. And then also I would do the walk cycles and run cycles of the characters. 
you know, which which I think are dependent on their anatomy and their character, and and then uh, and I would ask them, I'd say, what do you think? I did this run cycle in Wiley, and I picked, I chose this because of these reasons, and usually because we were so we were so tight from the beginning of the project, um, you know, usually I was right on. You know, they you know they they were like, wow, that's great, yeah, do more of that. Or sometimes they'd say, oh, could we do this too? So I was sort of inspiring, you know, them to come up with ideas to add on to the, add on nice. to the... Were you um, doing the run cycles yourself? Like you were drawing them yourself? Some things, I would do, did quite a bit of drawing myself. I mean, I, yeah. sometimes I would do initial character designs and say, I'm thinking something kind of like this, and I would hand it off to a character designer. Um, with the runs and walks, I actually did do those. Um, and sometimes I, for the some fantastic characters, like we have these borple beasts, so these big sort of furry buffalo type things that can run on all fours and walk on their hind legs. And I think I just gave a drawing for those. And then our animation uh, studio did some runs. And then I went over those runs, you know, just nice. to kind of push them a little bit. Uh, I, I love how- our gang. Yeah, I did those myself. I love how involved you are and actually like, you know, doing the kind of the work yourself and directing and stuff. Were you also see, overseeing like the voice actors and, and everything else like that too? Yeah, yeah. I, wor I worked with, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on Renee's last name now. He'll kill me. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, a terrific, he was a voice director and a, and a partner with me on that. And he helped find, cast our show. So he was wonderful in that. He was casting agent and voice director. And we would sort of tag team a lot of the, the voice directing. Nice. Can you give me some, you know, because you're, because not only are you working with, you know, animators and, you know, uh, people that are working on backgrounds and lighting and stuff and also voice actors, can you give me some tips on dealing with voice actors? Because they're not kind of in the animation, uh, you know, drawing talent. They're in a totally different talent and your, your experience is in animation. So how does that, how does that translate when you're communicating and working with them? You know, there's a funny anecdote that comes out when I was at CalArts. You know, at the end of the school year, you know, everyone's parents come out and, and everyone's like anxious to show their parents, look, that's how you make an animated cartoon, you storyboard it, and then you record the actor, and then you draw it. And, and I remember a friend of mine, uh, Kelly Asbury's mom, said, okay, I understand everything, but I just, there's only one thing I don't understand. How do you make them talk? So, so yeah, so voice acting when, and also when, and what's the difference between voice uh, directing animators and directing actors? And it's really for an animated film, you're directing it twice. You're directing a performance with the live action actor, the, the voice actor, and you're directing that same performance again with the animator and the board artist who's actually drawing it. But, uh, but yeah, it was, but I didn't go to school for it. I you know, went to school to be a cartoonist guy so when I first started directing and had to deal with an actor, you know, the advice they gave is, oh, well, go home, read the script, you know, make your notes and, you know, get your alts down there. And I'm like, notes? Well, what kind of note do you give? You know, <laughs> you know, I had no idea, but I'm like, okay, okay. Right, like I'll sound happy in this one and sound like... Well, yeah, well, so I would always prepare and, and the actors would always come in with this great spirit of cooperation. But I could tell sometimes I wasn't giving the actor what they needed or not. And so uh, I was probably, it was probably a couple of years into my directing career when I had the opportunity to have dinner with uh, uh, some friends who asked if, if, uh, 
if I would join them for dinner with an old Hollywood actor who turned out to be Jonathan Harris, who I knew from the old Lost in Space show when I was a little boy, and he did the, the voice of the, the praying mantis in Bugs Life. So while we're at dinner and we're having wine, and you know, I, I just confess to him that, you know, I've, I'm, I'm an animated guy and I've directed uh, actors, but I really don't know what I'm doing. What does an actor need? And, uh, and he, he gave me some wonderful advice. He said, you know, you know, really, all I need to know is what does my character want and how do they feel about and how does he feel about those around them? And then after that, it can be faster. You got to speak, especially for animation, be louder because you're in an airplane and you got to yell over the engine or be quieter because you don't want anyone else to hear. So like, give me an example. So like you're in, you're in, you have two characters in an airplane and they're just talking to each other about, uh, you know, the meal in front of them. What, like, you know, what would your directorial advice be to the voice actors voicing these two characters that are just, you know, the, the shot is them just sitting and talking about a meal. Like, how can you, how do you tell them what do they want and, and how do they feel about the people around them, for instance? In the in generic sense, just to understand the concept, if you had two people, you know, discussing dinner at candlelight dinner, and they could be talking about, you know, their kids or their a move they're going to do or something like that. And you tell the actors, you tell one of the actors that that you want to kiss the other person. They're going to give you a certain performance, even though they're talking about those mundane stuff. Yeah. You know, there's going to be this electricity and an attraction there. And then if you tell that same actor, and you just want to wring their neck. Or you want to stab them to death. It's still going to be calm dialogue in a quiet restaurant over a candle at dinner, but there's just going to be this acerbic performance in there. That makes a lot so of sense. That the, in broad terms, I think that's the way I always approach it. What does the character want? And really then what they're speaking about is immaterial because their job as the actor is to communicate that, that internal want. So there was, a, there was a scene in Kim Possible that I remember, as you brought up the question, that... Kim, uh, Kim was in, um, she was in an airplane. And the whole thing about Kim Possible, the joke was, is that, that because Kim's only 15 and she can't drive yet, she has to hitch a ride all around the world to solve whatever problem she's got uh, or she's, she's faced with. And because she's helped so many people in the world, she can call in a favor to anybody. And so anyway, there was one particular episode, she's in a biplane and she's having a conversation with the pilot and I remember asking Christy, now we're just in a booth, right? So she's in a booth in front of a microphone. And I said, I really need you to, to project in this one because the airplane's going to be really loud. And she came back and she was yelling the line out. And I said, okay, even louder. And she went even louder. And I still wanted it even, even bigger. And I, and I was thinking, well, because I could tell she looked at me like, I, I don't know what you mean. I've, I've gotten as loud as I can go. It's going to be ridiculous at that point. So I said, I was, I was in the booth now, or I was in the control room outside the booth, and I said, okay, I'm going to turn off the microphone, and I want you to yell your line so loud that I can hear you through the glass without the microphone connected. And then she did it, and it was brilliant. So You um, had secretly had the microphone on that, that entire time, too? <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no, I... Yeah. The speaker, you mean? <laughs> Why did you do that? We didn't need to hear a scream. Um, but so there are things like that. You know, you can do tools. You know, to uh, yeah, that makes a know, lot of sense because someone have a stream you want it. 
I've do, I mean, I've made a couple of live action short films in my day and I, my advice to the actors has been horrible. They're like, what do you mean? Do it angrier. And like, it doesn't make sense to them. That makes so much sense. Well, how, the, how does this dip? Is, I'm sorry, go ahead. You, I was going to say, how does this differ from advice you would give an animator when you're directing an animation? You know, like that dinner, that candlelit dinner scene, You would you also say, you know, animate these two characters talking, but this character wants to kill the other character? Like, does that advice translate there as well? Yeah, I think so. I think so, absolutely. And also, when you, what you just said is be angry, it's like, well, what does that mean? Right. You know, I, I can communicate anger and never raise my voice just by going wide-eyed. And, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I can think of all the times I've been really angry when I've been, I've shouted and when I've been really angry and I've, like, kept, you know, my, my cool. Yeah. People knew I was still angry. So I, I think what you do, you, you give someone physical something, you, you try to give an actor something physical. Uh, so instead of saying, oh, you're angry, just say, you just want to wring their neck, but you can't. Right, you interesting. Know? Or you want them to know that you're going to kill them at your first opportunity, or you <laughs> want to mock them. Or what, if you put, say, you put the word want first, I think that action will just kind of come to you. And the performance changes 100% after you give that advice. Yeah, and I found yeah. whenever I've kind of failed and I can tell I'm frustrating actors, if I stop and rewind and then just think about, well, what do I know what the character wants? Maybe I don't really know what they want and I'm not communicating that clearly. Yeah. I think it's interesting that this this came, you became a better voice actor director just from a random dinner with it and asking and asking a seasoned actor what they want. So tell me, you know, tell me about a time when, because you've also directed tons of animation uh, and, you know, supervised animation, et cetera. Tell me about something that's similar where you kind of learned uh, you know, how to direct animators better. I, it sounds like, you know, you've been directed for quite a long time, so you, you must have had started off with more skill, but is there, you know, a story or something where you really learned how to, you know, ease that process of directing animators and getting the result that uh, the overall look of the film is going for? And that's no, absolutely. The, the one thing comes to mind when I was working on the movie Mighty Joe Young, that it was a, a pretty unique situation where uh, there was a man dressed in a gorilla suit. There was a, there were some mechanical giant gorillas, and then there were several scenes. You know, I think not a lot by today's standards, but there were probably thirty or forty scenes of a CG gorilla, a CG Joe. And so I was working with a team of animators. And when when you're just working for yourself and you're given a scene, here here's a gorilla, animated gorilla. You animate the gorilla and you just kind of, you know, I would just go back to my desk and like, oh, okay, gorilla walks like this. And I just bang on it until it looks right. I draw it, redraw it, draw it again, turn the drawings upside down, backwards, you know. And, uh, but when you direct other people, you have to give more concrete advice. So there was an animator who was doing a, uh, a scene where, where Joe was walking along and uh, the Ferris wheel explodes and Joe, it, it shocked him and he jumped back. Uh, his first take was he animated the gorilla doing a cartoon take where there was a loud noise and he went bang, he kind of jumped up and, and backed up. And, and it was well animated. And uh, I showed it to the man in the suit and he said, you know, he says, th th this is good, but um, animals, when they're afraid, they, 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 
they, they antic, you know, in animation terms. They, they cower, and it's not because they're afraid, but they, they scrunch down so that they can either run away or attack. Hmm. You know, so this whole thing of jumping up in the air and going, ah, and doing a, a scramble, even on a photoreal thing, is just not realistic. So the man, so, so the man in the suit himself, he was kind of the expert on how gorillas. Oh yeah, I would. This is a wonderful thing because you know Rick Baker worked. Uh, he created the suit and he worked with this actor inside the suit to get the performance. And I would actually meet with John, uh, the actor, just once a week, every two weeks. And I would just show him dailies and go, "What do you think?" Because oh, awesome. our goal in that film was not to create a photoreal gorilla. Our our job was to create a photoreal version of him wearing the suit. So we were matched. We, I wanted our gorilla, our Joe, to be his Joe. So he, I wanted him to, as an actor, direct me and tell me where, where I did something with Joe that was outside of what he would do. Yeah. So, so he, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So then, you know, you showed it to him and he said, uh, you know, the gorilla is going to, when he's scared, he's going to, you know, bunch up. So then you went back to the animator. Yeah. And said, okay, bunch him up. Um, and, uh, and finish your shot. And he went, okay, great. He was, he was good. But then here's some, another, this is just where, where it was sort of a unique experience for me because I was relatively new and supervising other animators at that point. Uh, the animator had the four-legged walk of Joe. And a four-legged walk is tough. I mean, well, especially mimicking a man walk, in a gorilla suit, I can imagine. Yeah, so you, exactly. We're not just, okay. You Don't do put dog, me on that shot. One thing, right? Okay, and then it's like, okay, now do a gorilla. Okay, that's its own thing. Okay, now don't just do a gorilla, but mime this man pretending to be a gorilla, you know, and, and it, it wasn't the best walk, and, and you could tell he was struggling with it, and, and he asked me for some advice, and, and I said, oh, I, and, I, and I, I sat down and, and gave him the advice on the pattern of a four-legged walk, and and we looked at some of the footage and I pointed some things out and then I walked away thinking, wow, I'm glad I don't have to animate that shot because man, that's hard. Well, he called me back a few hours later and he said that, you know, I was looking at the live action footage of John in the suit and I, I'm not seeing those things that you're, you're, you told me about for a four-legged walk. And it, was, I, it forced me to actually sit down and, uh, articulate why it had to move that way, even if he couldn't see it in, in the footage of John wearing this black gorilla suit, why the hips had to move the way they did, mm. this way, that way, and rotate so he didn't fall over when he walked. Um, and really that was an education for me too, because like I said, up until that point as an animator, I would just kind of you know, draw rhythms and shapes and poses I liked and I would just kind of keep working it until I liked it but now I had to really approach it more from the outside in and say look here are the mechanics of a four-legged walk and this is why it has to work the way it does and you know to his credit that shot was brilliant when, when he finished with it it was better than something I could have animated myself and so it was two things it was a not only a great learning experience but I just felt this tremendous sense of accomplishment afterward that I had directed someone to animate a shot better than I could oh, wow. myself um, when he was clearly going into that shot, that's uh, a, my junior. Yeah, that's incredible. Also, you know, I think it's super interesting that uh, I guess in your animation career, you'd never done something like that before that was 
maybe so technically needed because you're trying to mimic live action uh, gorilla man suit, yeah. dialing it back to the technical, like you know, bare bones of what what's going on, really changed everything. Also, you know, how jobs happen, the connections that happen. I'd worked with the producer of Mighty Joe Young previously on the movie Hocus Pocus. Yeah. So when they when when they were having trouble with their gorilla, he reached out to me just to say, "Would you look at our footage and just tell me what what you think is is wrong with it?" Um, and, and the original reproach was that, oh, John, this, this actor, who's done a lot of, he's done on-screen acting and he's been in creature suits and that he knows how gorilla moves. So he's a man pretending to be a gorilla. They thought, well, since he's pretending to be a gorilla and he knows gorillas, we'll take our CG gorilla over here and we'll animate a real gorilla and make it photo real. And somehow these things will kind of meet together. And it was just the wrong approach because you really then had oh, a sense. bunch of animators animating their own version of what they thought a, a real gorilla was. Yeah. And, uh, some were more cartoony, some less, but none of them were John's performance, um, you know, in the suit. So when I came on, I said, well, we need to shift gears and we need to, everybody needs to like look at John in the suit. And we need to identify what is it about it that makes him unique and we need to do that in our animation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I'm just wondering, um, thinking about your career as an animator, uh, what was something that really, you know, pulled you through and made you made you improve and and kind of get ahead in that career? Like, was it, you know, just a mentality of always learning or hyper focusing on one thing and kind of becoming an expert at that? Like, what would you say your success as an animator was all those years? There was, you know, when I when I first started, you're you know, I, I struggled with drawing, you know, maybe more than more than some, not as much as others. But I was always trying to draw, looking what other animators were doing, and think, wow, that's a really neat take on Dirk the Daring or Sebastian the Crab or or whatever. But I always felt like I was kind of drawing from, you know, things that I saw the other animators drawing around me, and I knew how to squash and stretch, and you know into antic and things like that and 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 understood you know was trying to understand weight and all that as best I could so um, but then there was a, a short project that I directed on my own uh, while I was at Disney after hours it was a, a video for Paul Abdul the MC Scat Cat video and I animated a fair chunk of those shots myself and I had a video in my garage and I asked all my animation buddies to animate a shot but I think that was the first one I, when I just started, because there was no model sheet or anybody else to crib from, I just was like, well, I just want to make, like, let me just make a good drawing. Hmm. I don't know, and st I stopped worrying about model and go, oh, is this, a, is this a funny squash drawing on the character's face? Or why can't I make the hand this big, dragging it across the screen? Or, and, and I think that was a big, a big leap where I stopped trying to slave to the model sheet or squashing and stretching the model sheet, and I just started making drawings. Interesting. Uh, and, and so so you, you found a, a jump in your skill set from going from kind of the formula approach to throwing that away, experimenting, and then coming back and implementing kind of both sides to make just a that's good That's right. Instead drawing. of like, you look at like Sebastian the Cubbit, oh, that's how he is, and you're drawing little things. And you just go, ah, here's his general shape. Let me just do a funny drawing of Sebastian. 
And then, you know, you can always go back and look and go, oh, I made the head too big or the body yeah. a little too big or whatever and tweak it. But I think that leap of going toward drawing and trying to make sure that my drawings were on model as well as animating well to where it's like, yeah. let me let me just say I understand that drawing. Let me just do a funny drawing. Or a that makes a lot of drawing. sense. But yes, that, it was a, I guess it's a confidence leap too where I don't need to copy what other people have done at that point. I can try my own. Yeah. I can do my own squash or my own run on the character. I love it. What would you say, kind of the same question, but as your directorial career has, has been your success? Um, gosh, you know, I maybe, I, I just kind of looked at character, like getting back to The Great Wolf for a second. It, w the reason, you know, that I wanted to animate the walks and the runs was we all walk and run a little bit differently. Um, and they're very identifiable. There was a hallway at Disney Feature that in the afternoon, if you're walking one way, everybody was a silhouette. And if you're walking the other way, you could see what every, everybody was front lit. And it was amazing how you could tell who was walking toward you in silhouette um, just by virtue of you know, their walk and their timing. Uh, or it was a barometer of how well you knew them. If you didn't, someone said, hey, Chris. And I'm like, who's that? It's like, well, I guess I don't know them that well. But m more people, more often than not, you could tell exactly who it was just by the, the timing and shape of their walk. So for Great Wolf, you know, I was thinking, okay, great. We got this, this, um, this, this aggressive, not aggressive, but he's this uh, sort of fearless wolf with Wily Wolf. So his run's got to be aggressive, and he's a wolf. So I made him low to the ground, and, you know, his nose is right out front, and it's a very confident run, and it's, you know, boom, 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 this. Then uh, uh, there's Violet Wolf, and she's equally confident, um, but I wanted to contrast her with Wiley, and I was trying to think, you know, well, what communicates that? And my, my stepdaughter is a, is a distance runner, and she just has this beautiful gait when she runs, and I loved watching this uh, distance runners, you know, and it was, it was elegant and and a great contrast to Wiley, so I'm like, I'm gonna make her run like that. Um, and then you have Brindley the Bear, he's six years old, so he's arguably, say everyone in our group is between yeah, 11 and 13, 12 and 12. Um, Brindley's the baby at six. So his run, I figure they're either gonna be running from something, where he's gonna be scared out of his mind, or he's gonna be running towards something and super happy. So I gave him a really big, bouncy run so if we change his face where he's going ah, it's gonna look like he's trying to get the heck out of there but if he had a big smile on his face that run would still work because the bounce would then communicate a fun kind of energy um, then then sammy she's got a different body than than uh the raccoon oliver so i just sort of played with their anatomy so her, she's got a big bushy tail, so I wanted to give her sort of a little bouncy walk so it, you know, it, it would allow her tail to really you know, flow up and down. And, um, so anyway, I just, I, I just approached the characters like that. Um, uh, I don't know if that, I think I just, I diverged a little bit. Yeah, no, that's all right, no. What I'm getting from this is, you know, yeah. part of your success of, of directing is really understanding, you know, the world and the characters and really feeling out who they are is that would you say that's true yeah completely i guess it's the advice i was given to direct actors once i know who the character wants and how they feel about their situation then it, it helps me animate them 
you know. Exactly. Also, I have to say there's one other thing with directing board artists that I kind of skipped over. I boarded a little bit, but I, I, I largely went from being a character animator to a director. And, uh, and gosh, when I think about boarding, it's, you know, you get a blank piece of paper and it's like, oh, I could do anything. But working in live action really helped me uh, sort of hone my film grammar skills and understand, well, where do you put the camera? Why do you put the camera low? Why do you put the camera up high? You know, what does it mean to do that? Or, um, and also in live action, there's a physical limitation to where you put the camera. So I found after I did those live action films, working with experienced directors of photography and directors, live action directors, I was able to sort of direct uh, animated storyboards a little bit. Nice. So also having like a well-rounded experience, it definitely helps too, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, uh, we've chatted about where you came from, how you worked through your career, the pro like some projects you've worked on. What's next for you? Well, I'm still working on The Great Wolf Watch. I have two more shows to mix. I'm still approving uh, a handful of shots and uh, hopefully more Great Wolf Watch. I mean, uh, I love working, you know, at Six Point with Brendan and Vera and Susan and, and my crew. Gosh, it's been fantastic. So, um, you know, we, Brendan and I both expressed a desire to, to continue it in some Thanks. way. And we're hoping uh, Great Wolf Lodge will, will like our work so much that they pull the trigger and make more. But uh, we're still kind of waiting on that. But it, it's really been a wonderful, wonderful partnership. But right now I'm just finishing up Great Wolf Lodge. And, you know, working, which, and now because it's, it's tapering off a little bit, you know, I've been working a little more on a personal project. So that's always fun. Ooh, personal projects. <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> um, you know, I'm wondering, yeah. as we're kind of wrapping up our chat, is there anything that, you know, you haven't shared that you think would be interesting, uh, you know, just because you've had such a, a, a I don't want to say long, a long career. <laughs> I know, a long career. And, so and worked on so many, you know, different cool career. things over the years. Is there anything <laughs> you want to share with you the audience? You can see the bottom of the hill at the end of your career. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, I would love, you know, I, um, you know, I do have a, a website that has my work on it. I, I don't have a huge like Instagram presence, so I'm not always posting new work, but, uh, but you can kind of see a little bit of what, uh, what I've done on my website. And also there's a, there's a, a major damage page on my website. It's a personal project that, gosh, I created a couple decades ago as a comic book and a little CG short film. And it's kind of grown with me. I kind of always keep drawing it. I always keep writing it. I've never really done anything with it. It's almost become a movie once or twice. But um, um, but I do have a Facebook page devoted to major damage as well. That occasionally, as I finish animating shots in Harmony, uh, I post those. And you can look at at least one of the one of the animatics for the shorts that I boarded myself nice. on the uh, on the on my uh, my website page. Nice. So I guess people can look there, and I'm easy to find. I love looking at people's work, you know, whether if you're a student or a, even a high school fan or high school. I'll be student. careful what you wish for, and, and you might get bombarded. <laughs> What's that? You'd be careful what you wish for. You may get bombarded. I don't know. You know, well, yeah, that can happen too. But you know what? You you feel if people kind of overstep, you kind of give a little less advice every time. <laughs> yeah, right. Help me to become good, and you're like, I, you're like, I, listen, you you contact me every week like a, for the last year, yeah. like just publish well, your project. Of, uh, I gotta tell you this success story because yeah. uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Shannon Tindall, and he created Kubo on the two strings, and 
um, it just a bunch of other wonderful projects. He, I was at Disney Feature, and he sent me an email of just some things that he was doing in high school. Oh. And said, what do you think? Is this good? I made a CG Cogsworth. And, uh, and he showed me drawings, and he was trying to get into CalArts, and... And I loved responding to his work. He was clearly talented, and he well, he just he just reached out on a whim. He found your contact information somehow, and was like, "I'm going to send my high school drawings to this this big wig Disney guy." He picked a moderate wig. I was a like, sort of under this Disney. moderate wig. Disney. Wig. He probably I reached out to everybody at Disney and gave to respond. Right, right. But I think that's a really great story. You know, it's a lot of people. It's so funny when I publish an episode, people will contact me and say, oh, I really wish I could talk to that person. And I, and I just respond, go ask that person. Like there's there's nothing stopping you from reaching out to that person. So I think that's great. Yeah, that right. It's like, hey, how do I get a job at Disney? Well, they have this website and you can actually log on and apply and right. write, a, write a nice cover letter, you know, not too long. Yeah, um, yeah hilarious. Send a well, link to your work. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's been, you know, such a pleasure to hear your whole journey and you've given me some uh, really great tips on uh, next time I have to deal with voice actors or directing. I, I've written down your tips on my, on my yes, notepad. Yes, go to the Great Wolf Lodge. Take a vacation to Great Wolf Lodge. What? It's the only place you can, well, I guess they have a Facebook, uh, a YouTube page. You can see some of the movies, but some of them you can only see in the, in the, in the hotel. Well, I've, so. I've watched the trailer and it looks it, it, exactly what you said. You know, it's, it's a combination of great lighting, uh, the kind of Klaus uh, realism style, and some really fun characters. So, yeah, I'm excited yeah, to big, check big that out. out Kelsey Swan for our background design. Uh -huh. She just interpreted all my direction and all these crazy, crazy um, pieces of inspiration, and just you know, out the other side came our show. So. Nice. Nice. Well, thanks again for coming on. All right. Thank you. It's, uh, it's awesome. my pleasure. Great. And if, if you're listening and, uh, you know, Chris kind of shared, but if you want to check out his stuff or maybe reach out to him, you can do so by checking out his website, which is damagedfilms.com or his Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash maj.damage. And I'll include both those links in the description of this chat. And that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Okay. Bye. The music for this podcast was composed by Will Farmer and the graphics by Daniel Abensauer. I encourage you to look them up if you enjoyed their work.